when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello and welcome to Extremes. This is our very first episode of a six-part series. And what we're going to be doing is talking to people who have lived through the craziest stories we could find. Some of them are quite sad. There's a guy who was flushed down a crevasse and uh, he broke every bone in his body. That one's pretty sad. Some of them are funny. We've got another person who posted himself from London to Australia in a box. But the idea across all of the stories is that we just want to get a window into human behavior by looking at what people do when all of the rules get thrown out. So we hope you enjoy the series. This is episode one. They were accelerating motors, and then there's another even bigger, gigantic drop, and then the people were screaming. And we looked at each other, and he stretched out, he grabbed for my hand, I grabbed his. And then everything went black. In November of 92, a domestic flight in Vietnam crashed into a mountain, leaving just one survivor. This was Annette, who woke up in the jungle a few hours later to find that her fiancé had died, along with 30 others. Today, on the show, we're talking about love and loss. How do you redesign a future after the person that you'd planned it with is no longer around? I was born in the Netherlands, in the um, city The Hague, in a um, green neighborhood, as the youngest of four in a large extended family. I had happy childhood. I played with my cousins and, and my brothers and played lots of sports, hang out after school. And I went to college where I met um, pretty soon my, my love of my life, my soulmate, Willem van der Pas. I called him Pasje. We were really best friends for the first year. We studied together, we, we went shopping together, and we were in the same student house. We were both. Um, uh, a little different in a very conservative environment where everyone was very much alike, I would think. We were a little bit more liberal than everyone else. We, we wanted to do something different and we wanted to do um, something outside of the Netherlands. Uh, he, we were, may, maybe we were opposites in the sense that I was outgoing and, and he was a little bit more quiet. And we were in a very natural match. Well, we had a couple of good years in college and then we wanted to, to do something good in the world, but we wanted to get out of the Netherlands and we both went, we went to Chile together and after that we both started um, our career at the bank, went abroad for the banks, but at some point we did, they sent us to different countries. Then he got this last this job offer in Vietnam to set up two branches for ING Bank and it was really a chance his mother had had grown up in, in Dutch Indonesia at the time and it, he really was interested in the area. So it was said, okay, well, um, that you cannot say no to that. 
Um, so we worked really, really hard. And normally we would see each other every every other every month, really, across the globe. But now he even he worked so hard he didn't have time to see or to come to the Netherlands for three months. It was the first time in 13 years that we were together that we had not seen each other for three months. He said, I have to surprise. We, we Tomorrow morning I got to Vietnam and, and um, there were all these people in bikes and, and, and pajamas for me and bikes. And, and, and I just really still had to get used to the culture. I said, well, tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock we're going to leave. I have a surprise for you. I'm gonna, we're going to leave early. So the next morning we woke up really early. I, I, I didn't like that. I said, I first want to see how you live. I want to see how you work. I want to meet all your, the people. And, and I don't like waking up early. You know that. So there we went uh, very early in the morning. And when I saw the plane uh, on a tarmac that looked very much like in the 60s still, the plane looked very, very small to me and, and not all that modern. So I said, I, there's no way I'm going to go into that. I'm sorry, you know, I have claustrophobia. And it looked small to me. It looked old. I really didn't want to go in. And he said, please, please do. It's for us. It's for us. And you did. we're going to go to this most amazing romantic place, this beach. And, just up your alley and please go in and said no no let's take a car and and he said there's no way we can go through the jungle and we have to be back in 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 four days so please please so he convinced me to go into that plane we were traveling from Ho Chi Minh City to Natran it was 50 minutes flying but he told me it was 20 minutes to get me in basically so he said no please don't go in it's only 20 minutes you can do this you can do this for us and I really had always claustrophobia in, in small places so if we would take a plane from Washington DC to New York and, and it would not we were stuck on the turmoil he already had to negotiate with the pilot that I could sit next to him so I really I had really an issue with non-moving or small planes and um, he knew that but he was like well it was worth it to go. So I got in the plane. It looked indeed again very small. So I immediately turned around and I said, I cannot do it. And then he spread with his body said, please do this. You can do this for us. And so we sat down on the second row. Um, in me in the aisle, he, he, near, the, near the window, which is supposedly the, the most safe place in the, in the airplane I, I later found out. The seat belt was one like in a car that goes over, crossed over your chest. And um, so I put it on and immediately took it off again because I felt restrained enough as it was. Then we took off, I left my seat belt off and I was just literally counting the minutes and looking at his watch and seeing the minutes pass by and try to recite every single poem I knew or every everything I could think of to distract myself from being in that small claustrophobic place I tried to really shut out of my environment as much as I could and then uh, 20 minutes we didn't go down I said why are you not going down because it's only 20 minutes and then I asked the stewardess why are we not going down and she said well because the flight is 50 minutes so then of course I was like what do you mean and uh, you tricked me and, and, and then I was just again I had to uh, um, focus on, on surviving this very small small space for me then in the 50th minute, the plane made a gigantic drop. If in anything, that's like, oh, that got me out of my isolation a little bit. And then he, he looked at me scared and he said, um, he said, oh, well, this I don't like. And then I said, well, of course, a little shitty plane like that will drop. It's like probably just an air pocket. It's so small. Of course, it, it feel, will feel. It's an air pocket. It will feel like a big drop. 
and then there were accelerating motors. Then there's another even bigger, gigantic drop, and then the people were screaming. And we looked at each other, and he stretched out, he grabbed for my hand, I grabbed his. And then everything went black. I know later that, that we bumped into a mountain, and at the first mountain we lost a wing. I think that's probably when I lost conscious. And then it flew as a, to the next mountain where it dropped upside down. And because I was not wearing my seatbelt, I was like a lonely piece in the dryer. And in that plane, whereas everyone else got mostly injured by that seatbelt, which made their ribs go into their lungs. So still also there was this sound of this roaring plane and it was even the accelerating motors. That was my last thing I heard. And next thing I wake up to this eerie jungle sounds and this, yeah, this noisy, noisy silence really. And then um, I felt something heavy on top of me and it was a, um, a, a chair on top of me with a dead body in there. And... Um, I just I just pushed it away with all my might, and um, then I looked at my left, and then I saw Parsha, and he was dead. So he must have been dead a little while. We must have been unconscious for a little while because he was already very had a beautiful smile on his face, but he was really like white, white, um, like a dead person. I'm afraid, and and then I don't remember what I did must have been a shock naturally but it was just I what I say that I did I just stayed right in the here in and now I did not let my mind run off in, in what if scenarios I stayed in what was real and accepted what was real so I really looked around me and said well this is unbelievable this is this is your new reality this is it I don't like hiking at all and when I was not a nature girl I was a city girl and, and now I found myself with my claustrophobia, unable to move, in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by dead people and, and with no help in sight. So what really helped is just to, to just accept that situation and stay in the moment and, and stay in, in the now and accept reality. That's really what I did. When defining my situation, I said, well, every time I was like, don't think of Parsha, don't think of Parsha. I told myself that over and over again, because if, if I would think of Parsha, then I would start crying, and if I would start crying, I would get thirsty, and then, then I would get weaker. So I said, don't think of Parsha, don't think of Parsha all the time to myself. And then, and then I tried to think of the beautiful things, but even... In, I had to dissociate from him. And, and then I just thought about my family, how much they loved us, that I could handle. And, and I could just make, make little jokes to myself and about, well, my mother would think that I'm safe now. My mother always thought that I was safe with him. I was always happy when we were together. I just tried to focus on beautiful memories, but as soon as it was too much about him, I just had to block that out. I said, don't think of Pasha, don't think of Pasha, because then you will cry. And then you cry, you will lose it. So I would not, I could not afford to cry. The next memory uh, is outside on the jungle floor, about 20, well, 10 yards away from the plane. And I must have lowered myself with 12 fractures in my hip and, and two more fractures in my leg and a collapsed lung and broken jaw.
it must have been a mighty f- uh, flight response that I that I even crawled out of that airplane. The, so the fuselage had, had broken in two. So I had to lower my body actually to go down the mountain, which I must have done because the next memory is indeed on that jungle floor, looking over my shoulder where the plane and the bodies were. So then behind me was this plane cut in two. I went with passengers still moaning and you could see the chairs because it was literally cut in two, but it was chaos. Um, Out and about on the mountain, there were a few more people, a few moaning too. And next to me, there was a Vietnamese man. I said, uh, so do you think the rescuers, do you think they're going to come for us? And he said, yes, they will. They will, don't worry with the, you know, with the L and I said of the R. Um, I'm a very important man and they will come and look for me. But he was very much wounded. He was, um, he lay down, he could hardly, but he really made an effort to talk. I saw that I lost my wraparound skirt, so I was sitting in my underwear. I was a little bit um, ashamed of that, sitting next to the gentleman. And then he looked, um, he, then he got, opened his suitcase and he gave me, uh, he gave me his, his trousers from a suit and I put that on over my broken hips and broken legs. So that is um, keeping up appearances, I think. But in the end, that, that, must, that might have saved my legs because the insects, insects had a ball. There was, my, there was on my chin, there was this giant wound that I could see, I could see my, the bone through my flesh. Like in a biology book, I could see the bone, the flesh, I saw all the layers. And, um, and all my knee, there was this gigantic wound as well. So I was happy to cover that with his, the trousers he offered me. And then I saw the light go, the life going out of him. And he said, so I said, well, please, let's go, let's go and get some, some water. Don't die, don't die, don't leave me alone. Please come with me and maybe there's some water in the plane. Let's, and then he said I already had something to drink. And then I looked at him again and, and then I saw the light going out of him. I really realized that all the moaning had stopped in the plane on the mountain and that I was completely alone. I was about to panic. Then, then because I had this lung collapse, I think that this forced me to do some kind of yoga breathing because I panicked and then the pain in my chest stopped me from panicking because then I had to, it, with the half of the lung, it, it, it forced me to focus on my breathing and to calm down. And I think that was a, that was a major help in this, all of this, is that I had a collapsed lung. And now that I'm older and I do yoga, I just realize how important it is whenever you're afraid or whenever you have a panic attack, the breathing calms down your heartbeat. When he died, I was really about to real truly panic because I'd never been so entirely alone. Um, and then I start again, then I, I force myself to be back in the moment and start calculating first, like, okay, my colleague in Madrid, we managed a lot of money together and we would never, we would every day be on the phone during the week. This was going to be the first time since we had worked together for like three, four years in Madrid that we could not talk. So I somehow thought like, okay, by Wednesday we expect back in, in Ho Chi Minh City, it's Saturday morning now, and he will raise hell when he doesn't hear from me because he will always, he always hears from me. So I give him three more days to make noise. So I give it a week, and if it's if I don't if nobody's here by then, then I will crawl into that jungle. When I moved away from the man, when I saw 
I saw that he had maggots in his eyes and he had $50 sticking out of his pocket, his jacket. And, and then I, I, I took the $50 and you never know when I go in the jungle in the week what I can do with that. Maybe somebody will help me. And then I moved away from him on my elbows and I sat next to the wing of the plane and fainted. And then again, took on my surroundings and accepted my new surroundings, which is a little further away from the, from the beautiful leaves. But then I focused on the wing that I saw that insulation ma um, material of that wing was made out of a foam. I had this plan of making little balls out of that foam and then when it would rain, I could take sips out of that foam. And that's what I did. I remember that it tasted like the best champagne, honestly. I was so thirsty. I was also um, looking at my neighbor at, at some point like, and thinking about the people of the movie Alive and the Andes uh, who had ate each other. And I thought, there's no way, no way I will eat you. So I took every hour or two, I took out of two, I looked at the sun and I said, okay, I'm allowed to take a few sips, a few drops of water. But it was still not enough. I, my kidney died after that. And in the end, I think by day six, I was dying. I had this beautiful near-death mystic experience and I was really happy to go. And then indeed by accepting my circumstances and I, I looked what was there and then, I, and, and then I focused on the beauty of the jungle. And the more I looked, the more beautiful it became. So instead of looking at the dead person next to me, I focused on the leaves and the drop on the leaves and how the sun was hitting the drop and the beauty of it. And I was amazed by that beauty. And the more I looked, the more beautiful it became. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The next day, I was rescued by a team of rescue workers and who local people, mountain people. They made a hammock out of, out of uh, a stick. Between them, they carried me on their shoulder out of the jungle. But we camped first, so that's when I had to. That's when I left the jungle, and I didn't even want to leave because it was so beautiful. It was like by then I had this most beautiful mystic experience. Hey, I'm just going to pause here because if you're enjoying this podcast, then there's another one from Vice Australia you need to check out. This is called Anxiety Hour, and it's hosted by my good friend and colleague, Wendy Seifert. The show consists of some really honest and moving conversations about mental health with all sorts of public figures. And Wendy unpacks what their own demons have meant for them in their own lives and the kind of ways that they've learned to mitigate some of their more anxious moments. Uh, it's a great show, and here's a listen to it. I kind of have described myself in the past as like a fake shy person. So I've always felt very shy and like I kind of want to hide. And yet I'm six feet tall and I have like 6,000 teeth in my head.
Annette spent a total of eight days in the jungle. She'd broken bones throughout her entire body, and she nearly lost a leg to gangrene. But the hardest part of recovery was trying to do it alone. Annette, can you tell me about how you felt at this time? I was so overcome with sadness about not having my fiancé anymore. When I was back with my family, I, I have a very loving family, have fantastic friends in Holland. They visit me all the time. But it was all about mourning my fiancé. He was a son for my mom and for my friends. So it was it was all about him and him not being there anymore. And then we had the funeral and I was still in the hospital then. His body was flown over. I had to go in an ambulance to the funeral to the south of the country. And that was real traumatic because they carried me in and it was like my groom was waiting for me at the altar in a coffin. By that time, I was a celebrity, unfortunately, in Holland. So I just, I got out of that ambulance and there were all these cameras everywhere. There were like wolf cameras. I was aware, I was made self-aware by that. And then they carried me into the church after well, where he was waiting in a coffin. It reminded you of a, of a wedding that we were supposed to have had. They even walked in a, in a wedding march way, march way to the altar. So then I touched the coffin and they put me on the floor on the first row. And there was it was a beautiful funeral. Like it, it, Everyone has beautiful speeches. I chose the music and, and it, it was horrible. It was horrible. The bodies of the foreigners were all mixed up. So when we had this dramatic funeral in the Netherlands, I was carried behind my Romeo to the grave. And everyone in all the press taking pictures. And I was carried behind his coffin. And it turned out there was an Englishman in there because they mixed up these, the, the European mills. So we buried the Englishman. My, my fiancé had been cremated in Sweden and the Swede turned up in London and the father of the of the Englishman had opened the coffin and said, well, Hamish was not blonde. So then we had to exchange all the bodies back. What was the thought that you kept going back to most of that time? When you were really missing him, was there a particular thing that you'd keep returning to? Well, just his face, his eyes. All the time I was seeing his eyes. I was just seeing him all the time. Were you angry? In Holland, I just was really, I, I guess I was accepting, but the anger came when I went back to Madrid. All my friends were pregnant all of a sudden, and I went back to business, and I found myself alone at night in that in that apartment. Then I was angry at everyone. I was angry at his employer, at, at Vietnam Airlines, at my friends for having babies and not picking up if I called them, and I was angry at everyone. I wrote letters to Vietnam Airlines, and that helped. Did they reply? Vietnam Airlines sent me... New Year's card from happy 19, happy 1993 for you and your family. Wow, that's tasteless. Yes, no, it was. So. But it was the, the, the very action of writing the letter. Was, but still, I mean, you have to go through that. You have to go through all those stages. And I did. And then, and then again, it's, same. it's the same with it. Once you accept how things are, when I accept that he was gone, he stayed. Energy changes form. His love stayed. I mean, he's always with me. He's in a different form. By accepting that I was in the jungle and not on the beach with my beloved, then I could see the beauty. So I, I think it's, it's always in the acceptance. Once you accept thing, but in mourning, you definitely have to get through the acceptance and you have to go through the stages. Earlier in our conversation, you, you described him as, as your soulmate, which, which kind of has this um, almost made-to-be feeling about it. 
did you did you feel like there was something about this crash that had been fate or maybe it had cheated you out of a fate or was there any of this kind of element? I'm a realist and, and that's the thing. So at the same way in a jungle, I accepted reality. I accepted the reality of him being gone. What saved me in the jungle is that I didn't go into what-if scenarios. And that's the same. What if he would not have died? What if, what if? That doesn't help you. What if scenarios, it's, it's not real. I stayed in what was real. The reality that he was is that he was gone. People asked me whether I had survivor guilt, and I said, no, thank you, because I thought that was beautiful, and I don't think that I got the better part of the deal. The only choice that we really have is how to react to things. When you say we've only got a choice how to react to things, it sounds like you you, you almost believe that it's, it's not about fate. It was, it was kind of just the other way. Things happen, and there's no order to it. You respond. I say that. Shit happens. I know. It does. It does. And indeed, it is how you react to it. Absolutely. But if there's a there's a spirituality after it or karma, I think it's dangerous because it's a slippery slope or slippery to say all those things. But I do think is that death looked beautiful to me. Let's stay with that one for a moment. In, in what way did death look beautiful? It was a mystic unity feeling, a beautiful unity. I, I, com- I also compare it to an orgasm, if that helps. Let's move on to the, sort of the next bit about going back to work and, and kind of getting on with your, with your career. Uh, can, can you tell me about this period? I end up marrying, or uh, no, I, mar- I end up with my co-head trader. That's the father of my daughter who's here. He was uh, unbelievable. He, he flew me back to Madrid and where we started trading together again. And a couple of years later, we ended up together. In Hollywood, you would say, and they lived happily ever after. Indeed, we settled. We decided to leave Madrid and set up the business in New York because then I could have normal hours and have children. And we settled on the Upper East Side, and that's where the story should end. And they lived happily ever after. However, our second child, Maxi, turned out to have autism. He was diagnosed with autism. And that changed my life all over again in many ways. And again, I had to adjust my expectations of my future. It's a life-altering experience again. So your daughter, Yosha, she's in the studio with us. And I want to ask, Yosha, when you hear your mom tell this story, does it feel to you like this is a tangible part of, of who your mom is and, and who you are as well? Or does it feel like just these abstract things that, that kind of happened before your time? Well, so I can't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't know this story. I call it my party story. You know, if I want to seem cool to my friends at school or anyone, really, if I want to kind of make the room go silent, I just drop the, my mom was in an airplane crash bomb, and boom, I have the room's attention. So it's always, I used it kind of more as that, like, oh, yeah, this is a super cool story that I can tell, and my mom's super badass and super cool. But I'd never really internalized that my actual mother, you know, the one who has taught me everything about life and who has been there by my side always, was in a jungle in Vietnam until my mom published a book about her experience, Turbulence, and it was actually translated into Vietnamese. So in 2014, I had the pleasure of going with her to Vietnam for the press release of it. As part of that, we went to the base of the mountain where my mom crashed. So we were at the foot of the mountain, and I was just standing there with her by my side, and... 
I kind of looked at the mountain, I looked at her, and I, she has all these wounds from her crash, and they're very familiar to me. They're very familiar wounds when I was a kid, you know, I would kind of like climb over her and, you know, touch them and be like, ooh, this is funny. But I kind of looked at those wounds that I've known super well since I was like five. And I looked at the mountain, I just looked at her, and I was like, mom, were you really, was that really you? Why, why is it, do you think, that you survived and no one else did? I was not wearing my seatbelt. Because that's uh, fairly counterintuitive. I know. The advice we always get is wear your seatbelt. It was just pure by accident. It was not my time. I really find it interesting how this has basically informed your identity for a lot of your adult life. You're in the, the financial world, and then suddenly one day, for no particular reason, certainly not out of your control... You're the woman who survived a plane crash. I refused to accept that identity. I just didn't want it. I just wanted to be like everyone else. I already had changed enough without my fiancé, so I did not want that. I did not want to be a celebrity or anything at the time. I just wanted to be like everyone else. Josephine did not know the story for a long time until parents started Googling me. And then it became her party story, as she says. Then I realized that my story can help other people who end up empty-handed for whatever reason in life. I, and I see that with my book. I get so many reactions that it really does help. Now I made it a part of my identity because I really seriously wanted to give back. It sounds really cheesy, but it's really true. I don't like writing a book and I don't like talking about it, but I really, I really think I should, you know? My last question is when you hear about plane crashes on the news or, you know, plane crashes are in society they'll probably continue forever how do you feel what do you think i remember it's clear in september 11 my husband said can you come come look and look and then i was oh, why every time it's a plane crash why i always have to be involved and then i you see that was my first reaction it was it was always like no i don't want to hear about another plane crash people people think think about me then but it again it's a part of my everyday reality anyway i think more of the families because i was not only a victim of it. I was also a family member of it. And that's what loss does to you. you. You get more compassionate to people that had the same loss. So whenever there's a plane crash and so many people died, I, my heart goes out to the families. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you uh, fly regularly? I mean, how do you feel on planes these days? I'm living in New York and, I, and my mom is in Holland. We, we go this summer alone. I go twice. No, I fly all the time. I have to sit in the front because of this man on top of me in the chair I always want to see in the, sit in the first row. That's the thing. I really need to sit in the first row. And uh, if the airline has any problem with that, do you do you wheel out the story, the party story? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes. No, but th- I see that's the thing, though. It's like this obviously is a very sensational, you know, Hollywood-esque dramatic story. But truly, the most phenomenal part about it is not any of the dramatics, the crash, the you know, shin bone sticking out, none of that. The really wonderful part of um, this story is how my mom came back and how, like she says, it's just part of her everyday reality and she chooses not to make it her main reality. She has had a life as if she weren't in a plane crash, but was just her life after was just informed by the lessons she learned, but they weren't dominated, dominated by the experience. And that is really the most wonderful thing. It's not glamorous or exciting, but the everyday life led after such a dramatic and wild experience that she is able to live in every day and to live in the moment of every day. I mean, the love of her life was taken from her. Her future was taken from her, everything. The fact that she can go on every day and just 
retell the story and can put others first. I mean, there's not many people that would do that. That would take them their own ego out of the story. And that's her biggest lesson from her crash is to take your own ego out of it and look at what's bigger and what's more important than that than your own little self. Wow, Yosha, that was well put. So I just want to say a huge thanks to both of you for coming into the studio and sharing this crazy story. And um, I, I really appreciated some of the, the philosophy that you'd pulled out of it as well. So thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Extremes, just go to vice.com or iTunes. If you're interested in hearing more of Annette's story, she's written a book, and it's called Turbulence, A True Story of Survival. You can find that in most bookstores. This episode of Extremes was hosted by me, Julian Morgans, produced by a new Hasbold, edited by Jeff O'Connor, who also mixed and mastered it. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and our post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. And a big special thanks to our intern, Harriet Ran. Join me on the next episode of Extremes. We're going to be talking to a guy who posted himself from London to Australia. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.